We are continuing our series in Romans and uh, looking at the Word of God, looking at our salvation, both what God has done and how we live our lives out now in light of that, how we understand uh, what's going on and all that, um, all that God has done. Going to be looking at chapter 7, so if you want to turn there, we'll also have it up, up on the screen. Uh, how many people uh, caught the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games? Higher? Really? Good? What did you guys think? I thought that was sick. That was just awesome. I mean, I thought Russia did a tremendous job. Um, two weeks ago, I had serious concerns whether they were pulling this off, and I think they probably did as well, but it is just nice to see it come together. Uh, and what, what it is a tremendous uh, celebration, um, artistry, technology, ingenuity, sort of human achievement, all of this. Um, it's, it's this time as well, just, just coincidentally, that I'm uh, going out with my oldest daughter, Katya, teaching her to drive. Um, and so, really, um, your time of uninterrupted, lazy Sunday drives have now come to a screeching halt. Literally, beware. Katya, Katya and I are on the road somewhere, um, <laughs> coming to changing insurance information with you soon. Um, and so, uh, anyway, it was, a, it was a nice confluence where I was just thinking, okay, should we go out? She, she doesn't need kind of rain time practice. Where is there nobody around, a skid track or something? So driver training, the, this, the spectacle of Russia. And I remember getting my own driver's license when we lived in Russia. Now, to, to achieve uh, permanent residency in Russia, one, there were n- many requirements you had to do. And it was clear um, several years into it, this is probably four or five years in, God's calling us here long term. We want to be permanent residents. So one of the requirements, you have to get a Russian driver's license. If you're on a tourist visa, your international driver's license sort of works, but you're, you're going to run into trouble. But really, uh, it's so much trouble to get a Russian license. Most people just went with their international ones and, and renewed. But doggone it, we're going for residency. This is the requirement. This is what it takes. Throw down the gauntlet. Game on. So I had to take the Russian test in Russian. And I was surprised they had sections on Pushkin and Turgenev and literature. And I go, this is a driving test for crying out loud. But I guess, you know, ferret out all the, all the non-Ruskies. So, man, that was brutal. But, but finished the, you know, did okay on the, the written test. And then I had to go for a medical exam. And so I, I had just given this thing, show up at this uh, hospital block this time, 6 in the morning. I show up there, me and about 150 of my closest friends. And everyone's there going, oh, I hope I never have to do this again. Oh, this is my second time through. I didn't think I'd make it through the first time. I'm like, it's a driving test. And there was no driving part of this whatsoever. Okay, there's no driving part. And so I'm wondering, what, what, what's there? So I go in, and it was a blood test. And so it's just jab, drain, you know, see what blood type is. We'll get back to you on that. Go into another room. How many people saw The Princess Bride? Okay, how many people remember The Pit of Despair? Okay, there's actually a machine that the MGBDD, um, which would be the DMV equivalent, owns. And it's an old cardio machine. Russia has state-of-the-art cardio equipment, but... All the hospitals get that. So the kickoff from a generation ago is now being used by the DMV. And what it is, it's a suction-driven cardio machine. And so these suction cups are hooked up all over, all over. And I'm like, well, that seems kind of odd, but I'm, I'm thinking through how is this going to work? Is it conductivity? My mind's working. And all of a sudden, I heard this. The compressor's going. Go, that's... Well, my heart's beating faster. Maybe it's a stress test. I don't know. And all of a sudden, it's like, ah, 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 ah. and and I'm, I'm these things are just sucking as much of me into these little tubes as they can. And I'm just on the thing like this. Welcome to the pit of despair. And I must have been on there for maybe 30 seconds. It felt like 30 years. And and I'll spare you the details, but it looked like I gave birth to a litter of puppies when we were done. I mean, I just had big. It it was, yeah. Um, <coughs> Um, me and everyone else. And so, next room, psychiatric evaluation. So I sit down, there's a battery of doctors, they're quizzing me, Rorschach tests, and, you know, old school, and, you know, all these questions. Okay, he's not a psycho, stamped off. I uh, had to go to a, a physical fitness, had to go to eye exam, hearing exam, uh, kinesthetics exam, neurological exam, um, 10 different doctors in all. And so finally, after going through all of this, I uh, had to go back and get everything read. 
So I go back to the blood thing. They're just sloshing around. Okay, here's your thing. Stamp, stamp, go. A cardiologist is standing up at a window. It's the end of the day. And so we're all throwing our cardio tape from the Princess Bride soul-sucking machine to him. And he'd catch these things and read them through the window. Yeah, yeah, mitral valve prolapse. Sucks to be. You might want to check on that. You know, and so we'd all get our things all day process. And then I had to stand in line for the actual license and the plates. The shortest I've ever stood in line at the DMV in Russia is 17 hours. That was the shortest. I was crying with joy when it was only a 17-hour line. Typically, 53, 54 hours is what you have to look forward to. So you line up, you wait all day, and then you come back the next day. And so you think, oh, there's only three people in front of me, but those are three people that have been saving space for 10 people each, each of whom have been saving space. And so everyone's on shifts because everyone's working. And so we're going back and forth, and it's a pecking order. We get there talking to six different officials, have to go to another part of town, another thing stamped, had to get plates from another place, had to gift this department, gift another department, back and forth. Three weeks later, I'm holding my Russian license. I did this, baby! Yeah! And then something happened. I can't even remember because this happened all the time. It's not just the diplomats that are playing chess, you know, and geo- geopolitics. Um, I think America at that time had found some spies or something in Florida, Russian spies, or identified them as such, kicked them out of the country. Russia had done the same, and so countries changed their visa requirements. So now all Americans had to renew their visa every three months instead of once a year. Okay, it's kind of an inconvenient, but this, this happens all the time. If you're living overseas, you just got to deal with this. My license was tied to my visa. So guess what I had to do in three months? Welcome to the pit of despair. So every three months, EKG, blood test, stand in line, 17 hours, 53 hours, 64 hours, 72 hours, stamps, all that. I had to keep doing this over and over and over again. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I complied, they kept changing the rules, changing the requirements. It was never enough. I wasn't going to get this thing. And, and meanwhile, during all of this, we're, we're, we're a completely Russian mission. Unlike every other mission, we decided to go all Russian. We paid Russian corporate tax on our missionaries. Don't ask, long story. Um, everything was above board. Three years later, there was one mission that was granted um, you know, full Russian status, and that was our mission. And so we could write our own visas. And so now I could write my own visa. Hmm, who do I want to be? Research scientist, political functionary. Whatever it is, we just write the visa. How long do I want to be in Russia? We'd write it. So when I walked down to the, um, having done all this again to the DMV, the guy looked at me and goes, what are you doing here? You don't need to do any of this. You're one of us. You're automatically. Your license carries over for life. Um, You're good. You never have to come back here again. You're in. And I'm just stunned. And he goes, oh, by the way, we're not going to give you foreigner plates anymore because you come here a lot. I like you. And when the riot happens and we kill all the Americans, I don't want them finding you. So they gave me Russian plates. I'm, I didn't know if that was a joke or friendship. I, I'm not sure. Um, I got out of there quickly. But um, very grateful to have the Russian plates. This is the difference in what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. Paul's going to be talking about his experience, and we're going to back up a bit and then, then run into it, his experience as a God-fearing Jew trying to please God to the best of his ability, and no matter what he did, no matter how hard he sacrificed himself, how diligent he was to follow every single rule, it wasn't good enough. He couldn't measure up, he got tired, and it wore him down, and it was a body of death. What was meant to be life was actually killing him. And he's going to talk about how this experience Rather than being normal for the Christian or a state of grace of, oh, it's okay, Christ did it for you, can actually be one of the more damning things. And and I mean that, and you'll see where we're going with this, in getting us off track, robbing us of joy at the very best, or keeping us at arm's length from God. So we're continuing with how does our salvation track out here, but for Paul, he's getting to a very raw, very emotional place that has cost him greatly, and so he's going he's gonna to preach this, uh, and, and he's pretty passionate about it. What we're looking at is simply this, the requirements of God, all that God has asked us to do, the requirements of God are no longer over us. They're not standing over to judge us. Have we measured up? Have we done enough? Is there something else that we're unaware of? Do we know where we stand? Uh Uh-uh. The requirements of God, very clear, but they're no longer over us. They're within us. And it really is the difference between trying to do everything that we possibly could and not measuring it up to, it's yours already, stroke of the pen, so to speak.
Now, what we've been looking at in Romans, for, for those just, just joining us here and in Radio Land, uh, is this is a section on salvation, Romans 5 to 8. And it has to do with every tense of our salvation. Christ has done this for us already. It's the basis of our faith alone. We're not going to mess it up. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. All who call upon Christ can, can stand in that circle. Saved from the penalty of sin, free at last. But that's not the whole story. There's a present tense necessary outworking of our salvation. It's not just, oh, I mean, because otherwise we come to Christ and we just start, well, he must have received Jesus because now he's in heaven. God called him home. No, he, he left us here for a purpose. And that purpose is real and necessary. Because it's God underwrites us being here, making choices, falling down, still not getting it right, hurting others, hurting ourselves. He underwrites that with his pain. And he's willing to because there's no better way for God to accomplish what he needs to in us than this present tense issue of our salvation. We're able to come to the table because of what Christ did, period. Now, having done that, we come to the table and we are being saved from the power of sin. Last week, this is what we looked at. The temptation, the enticement. Do we still see ourselves as somebody apart from Christ, independent of Christ, who, who, who can take care of all their own needs? Or do we see ourselves now utterly dependent and thank God that the true lover of our souls is the one who, who's got our back? Okay, so who do we, what do we act upon, our old identity or our new identity in Christ? And that's a real-time choice of what is really real. And then, then later on, we'll look at our future tense, we will be saved from the presence of sin. It's not just about our own personal sin, it's not just about our past, it's not about what Christ did in eternity, but it's also what Christ will ultimately do in setting the whole world aright, and we are our agents in the middle of this. So salvation is not this one thing, salvation is really everything. It's too big to get our arms around even in scripture, so we're looking at different aspects of it. Okay, last week we looked at our identity as how we saw ourselves apart from Christ and how we still tend to have a hangover. We still have this way of seeing ourselves and and reacting out of that area. We're going to look now at that same thing, but how we see how God sees us and how we react out of that. Okay, what the Bible teaches has been looked at many different things, um, reality and and acting on that, uh, indicative and imperative. This is who you are. This is here to live in light of this. See, religion worldwide, doesn't matter what religion it is, um, even atheistic religions, um, they put the cart before the horse. First, you do these things to be this kind of person, and then once you do it enough, then you become who you're trying to be. That's religion. You work for it yourself. You're on your own. God said it's never going to happen. You're you're falling from the beginning. It'll never be enough. It's too late. I love you too much to let you go. I'll do the heavy lifting for you. And so this is who we are already in Christ because of what he has done. But that's very new in our experience. So the importance of this life is to work it out in the here and now. What we tend to do as Christians is one of two things. We either divide the categories. Yeah, Christ did this somewhere isolated and and maybe it's a present I open up in heaven. But right now, man, I got to do it my own. And we get tired. And we quit. We put our packs down. Because that's difficult trying to measure up to a God we can never please. That's religion. And even as Christians, we get in this mindset. We're going to look at that next week. Or we combine the categories. Christ did everything for me, and so I'll just do whatever I want, and I'm going to be just as perfect in heaven, irrespective of what I do. Neither of those are how we were meant to live. Neither of those are lives of power or integrity. Those lives are are lives of, of, of missing it, of falling asleep. And so Paul's writing this letter saying, this is the gospel I preach. He's writing to the Roman church saying, this is what I saw God do. This is how he changed lives. This is what is real. And this is what I want your help to help me preach in the West. And so the Romans are reading this saying, is this the gospel we can get behind? In other words, does it play in Peoria? Yeah, this is grandiose theology, Paul, and you write so eloquently, but does it make sense in the recesses of my own heart? Because if it doesn't work here, it doesn't work. And so Paul's saying straight up, these are the main dynamics we struggle with right now. Because the assumption is if you're reading this, if you're studying it, be it the church in Rome or right here and now, you don't want to live a mediocre Christian life. You don't want to live a life of defeat or frustration. You want to live the life that God has intended you to live, which is very different from what you might think it is. 
God does not have a wonderful plan for your life in that all the specific details is plan A and if you miss out, then it's kind of the sub thing and you're trying to find this perfect plan somewhere. God is wonderful and invites you in to participate in his glory, that we're partakers of his very nature and however it cashes out in our life, when we are dialed into him, it is going to be glorious. It's not going to be easy, but it is going to be a life of substance. That's why when the, the parable is used of at the end of the day, we've chosen what's most important in our lives. How is the judgment compared to or what's it compared to we, we, out of our experience? Uh, but a greater society, everybody knew about um, sifting wheat, that you take the wheat at harvest time. You, know, you just pull the stalks out, you smash them up a bit and you throw it up in the wind. And what's called the chaff or the stuff that we don't eat, we, we call that fiber now, but what used to be called chaff is blown away. No nutritional value. And then the wheat remains. And it's this sort of aspect of our soul. At the end of the day, with how much we're living for, how much we're trying to achieve, how much is chaff that gets blown away, and what's the substance of a heavy soul in God? And so that's the basis of this, is Paul saying, I want you guys to have fat souls, substantive souls, neutron star souls, and not just like the rest of the world being blown about by whatever the next thing is. We really are as holy as we want to be. Romans chapter four, starting with uh, chapter seven, starting with verse four. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. We might think like God, feel like God, act like God, love like God, forgive like God. It's what bearing fruit for God means. Um, throughout the Bible, people are wondering. Well, what's this person really about? What's this person really about? And the, the Occam's razor, the thing that just cuts it, often from the lips of Christ is, you will judge a tree by its fruit. If it's a good tree, ultimately there's going to be good fruit. It might take long, might be immediate. If it's a bad tree, it's going to bear bad fruit. So that we might bear fruit for God. When we were in the realm of the flesh, before we came to Christ, when we were ruled by sin, unsaved, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what's bound, what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, the old way of the written code is what people remember. When people think of coming to God, they think of what am I going to be called up short on now? This is the audience he was addressing. Before we came to Christ, we were under decisive influence from sinful desires. We, we were going to do what we most wanted to do. And that was informed by what we most valued at that moment. What we needed for us, independent of anything else. But now that we're released, those, those laws don't stand over us. So why do they still feel as though they do? So he begins this with, a, with an analogy of marriage, not, not marriage found in the law, the Torah, but civil law, that everybody, whatever culture we're talking about, whatever foreigners are here, everybody's got marriage laws, and they're all different ways, no fault divorce or no divorce or whatever, but there's one release that everybody knew, that when, when there was a, a couple who was married uh, and there was a death, that, that, that uh, there was a release from that marriage. And this is the strong point that Paul is making. He's saying, we were married to Adam. We were married to the flesh apart from God. We were married to humanity that tried to do its own way apart from God. And it's saying we can try hard as we will to, to get better and to try and work within the situation. It wasn't going to happen. Is sin going to attend marriage counseling? Is sin going to grant a divorce? Uh-uh. There's only one release, and it was a radical release, and so this alludes back to the necessity of the death of Christ. That's how intimate, how intimate you're known in marriage, how intimate you're bound up, how intimate the law recognizes that. He's saying that was what we were apart from Christ. Okay, and that, that holds over a lot of things because that formed how we saw ourselves, what our values are, what's important now, how, how we feel about us being okay before God. All those were formed like white clay apart from Christ in our humanity. And so those effects carry over into our life now. Okay? Now, um, often we see salvation as a matter of agreeing with new information. Oh, I'd heard this about Christ, and now I see these facts, and it's laid up. There's a truth element that's necessary, but it's not that. Or it's club membership. This is what it means to join this church and to be a member, and these are the dues and the requirements, and I'll sign on the dotted line, and I'm in. 
Or maybe we see salvation as feeling bad enough in a crisis to call out to God. See, again, it's a much deeper relationship and a much more permanent relationship, and it required a much more radical solution. That's why Paul continues to go back to, this is what Christ did, Christ did alone, the only basis of our salvation, and that is beautiful news, because I'm not going to mess it up. I'm not going to drop the ball. I'm not going to continue to not measure up, which I'll continue to do, um, and be counted out, because it's based on Christ alone, because of God's love. But he made an odd statement in making this point, and now he has to go on and defend it for the next, like, eight paragraphs. And it's simply this. The law provoked sin in me. The law of God. God said, this is good, this is who I am, and that's when I went sideways. So people going, wait a minute, I thought God was good. I thought his law was good. How could, how could this be? So he jumps into this. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? See, I'm not making this up. This is really what what he was arguing here. Um, Just reading ahead a paragraph. It's not too hard. Certainly not. Um, It's that word again. Hell no. That's the strong one. And so again, he's saying you could clearly make these points if this is all you had to go on. But dig beneath the surface. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Use an example. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Okay. What's going on here? Okay, uh, it's a sense of sin, if left alone, it's on the radar, it's operating in our life, but it's kind of operating in the background. It's like a background scanning in our, in our programming. It's under the radar. It's, it, there's effects, but we really don't see, oh, this is causing that. We just know there's sin that's operating somewhere, and, uh, and it's not until we have a reveal of what sin is that we see it in its true form. How many people have gone into the kitchen late at night, they flip on the light, and they find a cockroach in their, um, in their living room or in their kitchen? Don't, don't you hate it when that happens? Uh, it's, just, it's brutal. I mean, the last thing you expect to see, you're like, ah! And you're like, God, it, we're out of paprika. I told you not to use that. Chances are you flip on the lights in the uh, kitchen, you see something like this. And it's not going to be hanging around for long. What do cockroaches do when you put on the light? Which is really great when it's like your bedroom and you flip on the light and you see the cockroaches go. That's exactly what the word of God does to sin. That sin is in operation. Gospel of John. The light came into the world, but we didn't come to the light because our deeds are evil and we didn't want to have them revealed. We don't want the reveal. Garden of Eden, what's the first thing that happened? There was an awareness of sin. There's a break in the relationships. Walls go up. We took this inexorable burden upon ourselves. Now what are we going to do? We can't handle this God load of determining what's right and wrong for us. Our soul's crushed. And, oh my God, now we're naked. I'm, I'm afraid, so I'm going to hide. And I'm ashamed at what I did, so I got to cover it up. Cover it up in lying, cover it up physically. Just just the foolishness and irrationality of sin. Same exact things going on here. Sin is revealed, and it can't stand the light of God, and so it flees. Let me flip it around. Have you ever been trying to escape from any place? In the dark, you're trying to blend in. You're trying not to make any noise. You're trying to get away. Nothing will put the fear of God and get the heart going pitter-pat, then all of a sudden, boom, there's a searchlight on you panic. I cannot be seen. I'm dead if I'm seen. I mean, it could be a child game of, uh, you know, flashlight tag, or it could be a, a guard, you know, with a sniper rifle. Um, you do not want to be seen. You will scramble. You do anything to avoid. That's what the word does with sin. But he says it's not just sin trying to hide. It's sin is then provoked. Sin is then shown what it really is. The mask comes off, and it's not just operating principle that's completing the rest of us and kind of this uh, ethanol we, we put in our car to kind of get by, but it's shown to have this, its talents in us, this decisive control, this decisive damage that's going on. The law came to show the true reality of our connection and sin. It brings it into sharp and personal focus. Sin's horrible were utterly entwined, and ultimately sin is warping back on self. 
where we're our own event horizon. Nothing extends beyond us. My needs, my wants, my whatever. And it's this complete closed loop. But the law came to reveal what that was. When I say the law, when Paul says the law here, do you know what he's talking about? Okay, Paul would be specifically referring to the 612 mitzvot or commandments we find in the first five books. That's typically the law. He's a lawyer. He's, he's a, um, a Pharisee. He's using it very technically. But by that time, it meant the entire word of God. So we can say, we can add to that because it was continuing to expand uh, the Bible. So the revealed word of God, God puts the searchlight on out there into our hearts and we see what's going on. Need to say one thing though. In Christianity, there's a common misperception that God never intended us to be able to keep the Old Testament law. That God put the law out there to show how impossible it was for us to follow him and our need of him. Nothing could be further from the truth. Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, so people had wrestled with God, arm wrestled, danced with him, he kicked him in the pants. It was a visceral relationship, 40 years wandering. And so he gives him a refresher course on, um, hey, your driver's test is tomorrow, going into the promised land, let's review. And from about 11 to 36 in Deuteronomy, it's the law is given over again. Um, there's an interesting part in chapter 30. And it's referring to everything that God has commanded. And he's reminding them and he's saying, are you going to do this? Yeah, 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 we're going to do it. Now, what I'm commanding you today, everything in the Bible, is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you'll have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and your heart so you may obey it. See, grace was always embedded in the Old Testament law. And God had always intended that his people would do what is right. This is the best way to live. I want you to always be looking up, always looking to others as I am love. I am God as love and it just splashes out to others. This is how we're to conduct ourselves. So the law wired these principles in their culture and in their time as a very practical way to be lovers of God, lovers of others. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Bind these to your forehead. Bind them to your hands. Tell them to your families. Write them on the post of your house. Talk about them in the city. Your public life, your family life, your personal life, your actions, your thoughts, your feelings. Every area of life was to be imbued with God. And the understanding was it was totally doable because God made us this way. Okay, so that's God's perspective on this. However... Even though the law is good because it's God's heart and it's the way that love is manifest in specific areas and and how we can play that out to our life here and now, the law is weak because it never had the power to change hearts. It never had the power to change hearts. You see, sin through the law was shown to be the key power. It showed us how dependent we are, how addicted we are, how familiar it is, how operative it still might be. We're going to talk about that. That's the real power where we're getting messed up. It's not a failure to obey. It's a failure to have our hearts changed by the truth. I'm going to use an example. I'm not making an editorial comment either way about rightness or wrongness of war or anything. I use a very common example because it illustrates this point perfectly. What's the strongest military in the world? Strongest military, number of troops, budget, technology, force projection, power projection, the United States, without a doubt. We, we, have, we are the ultimate superpower on the globe. Um, the strongest military in the world, in the longest war that we have ever fought, in 2010, Afghanistan uh, surpassed Vietnam as the longest war we've been involved in, that Civil War, World War II, all of that. Uh, and, and the clock is still ticking in Afghanistan. This is the longest military conflict the United States has ever been involved in, and been involved as the dominant, strongest military superpower on the planet. But the longer the U.S. is in Afghanistan, the greater the proliferation of the Taliban. Okay, in, in O2, it was almost eradicated, but the continuing presence, simply for one reason. You can have all the power, all the intel, all the tech, all the fighting spirit, all the everything you would want in a military in the world, and it cannot and will not change hearts. You see, people have a worldview, people have an experience, and th- no amount of force projection is going to change that whatsoever. Uh, the, the, the joke in the Pentagon is, hey, we just developed a new cruise missile, creates 100 new terrorists with every explosion. 
See, it's recognizing there is no easy way to conduct war whatsoever. And you have boots on the ground and 20,000 people dead, or you have a cruise missile and 10 people dead. But the cost of that cruise missile and 10 people are dead, you can have 100 more people that now hate you that didn't. And there's no easy solution. This is just war is hell. War is a nightmare. But it illustrates the role of the law perfectly. That as strong as the U.S. military is, as great as the technology is in all of this, it is an unwinnable mission because the missions are at cross purposes with each other. We can achieve a stand down or a ceasefire, but we're never going to change changing hearts. That accomplishes through hearts and minds and community development and trust and all these other things our military is doing, but it works at cross purposes to power. Same thing with the law of God. It is the most powerful thing. It is God's word. It is his truth. His word ordered the universe, raised Christ from the dead. There's nothing more powerful than the proclamation, the command of God. And yet it's still just presented rawly. It doesn't change hearts. It reveals the hearts that we have. And that's the problem. It shows that we are the ones. Although we're able to keep the law, we don't want to. Did that which is good then, God's word, become death to me? No way. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Hold on to that phrase. It's important. Sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but the sin living within me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sin nature or my old sin identity. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. (laughs) Sounds like... um, Bing Crosby, right? But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who's living in me that does it. Um, and so basically, Paul's saying, damned if I do, damned if I don't. He's saying, look, I know what God's word says. I know I should be doing this. I want to do it. I never get there. I don't do it. In fact, God's law goes on to say, but I shouldn't at least do this. Uh, once it said I shouldn't do this, like, Really? And I end up doing the very thing I shouldn't. So the word of God, which is supposed to lead us to life, is actually a source showing that Paul was under death. What, is he, what do we do with this? Okay, this is where we get to the meat of, of where we are as Christians. This is one of the most... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll comment later. Um, The common understanding of this creates a lot more problems, and I think there's a better way of understanding this. Okay, the point here is not to excuse individual choice or cast the person in the light of the ill-fated hero. God loves them, but they're just, there's no way they're going to be able to follow. What's going to happen? The point um, is is, uh, not to show that God's word is bad or it's flawed or somehow he missed this out. But the point is to show the decisive role of sin and the necessity of the word and our need of God. Okay. What we've been looking at is every individual person can find themselves in Adam. Romans 5 said, as Adam, as our forebears, as whoever calls themselves humanists, they decided to go their own way. We did the same thing in Adam. And then it's um, Israel in Adam, that we have all of humanity. And from all of humanity, God picked a special people group to say, I'm going to show the rest of the world what it is to walk with Yahweh. Does faith make a difference? And so whatever Israel would do, the understanding is all of humanity would have done it. All of humanity would have messed up just the way Israel did. And that's the point that God chose them, to display his grace, to display his mercy. And then finally, we have Paul in Israel in Adam. So Paul... See, he's scratching his head going, I need an example. I need somebody who's an expert in trying to follow God's law and somebody who just pulled their hair out with frustration. Oh, that was me. And so he uses himself as an example here. Now, it gets a little confusing because in in the ancient world with the grammar, everyone would have read this and said, okay, I know what he's doing. But with us, and especially in English, we read it and we start going the wrong direction with it. See, the problem is that Paul says, When I do this, when I do that, I don't do the good that I know I should do. I do the bad that I don't think I should. We think it's present tense. Paul is a Christian helping us to, you know, uh, look into his own personal struggles. This is absolutely not what's going on here. 
Grammatically, what's uh, happening is this is called the historical present. In other words, it's a way of telling what happened in the past, but it's so vivid, it has so much bearing, you're telling it real time. It's a storytelling technique. Paul does this in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement that God came into the world to save sinners among whom I was the foremost. Totally true statement, but that's not what Paul said. It's a trustworthy statement that God came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Now, Paul would have to beat Paul up for saying that because Paul would be the first one to say, whoa, you are not a sinner now in Christ. You are not a sinner. You've got to stop seeing yourself that way. And, and that's the very point that Paul's making here in, in Romans 7 and 8 and 6 and 5 and, well, basically every chapter of the book and most of the New Testament. Okay, the whole, all of God's word makes this point, but, but Paul's certainly in good company. Um, so why would Paul say, I am the foremost sinner? Because he's using this historical present. He's saying, look, I am aware how much pain I caused people. I am aware how much I've been forgiven. And that is my motivation. That is how much I love. That's what spurs me on. That's the hope. If God could forgive me, I know he can forgive anyone. And there isn't anyone who's beyond the reach of God. Because if he could reach me, of whom I'm still painfully aware of the, the bad I've done, He's not trying to work it off. It's not a guilt thing, but it's, it's a realization. And so Paul uses this same grammatical technique to put us in the driver's seat. You know what it's like to be a religious person that really wants to serve God but does not have the Holy Spirit, that is not saved and is just trying to do it on their own? I'll tell you what that's like. You can read the first five, chapter, five verses of Philippians 3, and you'll see the good spin, or I'll let you in on the inside and what it really felt like. And that's what Paul's doing here. This is what it is when we try to follow God, seeing ourselves still as a sinner judged by the law and not as saved by grace and forgiven past, present, and future. Okay, most of the church has tended to see this as a Christian, that that the person who's referred to, that I do this and I do this as a Christian. Why why do we do that? Why Why do you think we would tend to read this straightforward as someone being a Christian? Well, Paul does say I, right? We read it in English. It just makes sense. But again, being aware of kind of the bigger picture and what's going on, that doesn't have to be a deal breaker. It validates very real struggles. We struggle with sin as believers. Question I asked last week, who doesn't sin? Does anybody not sin as a believer? We still struggle. The, 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 this is being saved from the power. Okay, And so it validates if Paul struggles with sin, and this is Paul, the hardcore uber missionary, well, then it gives me hope that maybe I'm, I'm still on the right track. Okay, So I'm in good company. And so that's encouraging to see this person as a sinner or as a believer. And if Paul struggles, then it gives me excuse. I don't have to beat myself up. Paul struggled with sin. I struggle with sin. Get off my back, all right? Come on, we all struggle with sin. Lighten up. And, and so it tends to validate our experience, but it's nailing us down in the wrong place. Okay, I see this as, and this is my opinion, I could be wrong, but I see this as a non-Christian for a whole bunch of reasons. One, the whole movement of Romans. Okay, it's, this is, uh, we're being saved from the, from the presence of sin. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the, the power of sin. It's these tenses. Um, last week, we looked at, you were not under the law, but you were under grace. What does that look like real time for the believer? Last week, we looked at, you are under grace. So don't see yourselves as you were before. See yourselves as under grace. Don't operate out of the old sin identity, which is familiar, but the new grace identity, which is unfamiliar. Well, this is the flip side of that. You are not under the law. So what he's saying is stop seeing yourselves as condemned under the law, that God's going to get you, and start seeing yourselves as under grace, freed from the law, and God isn't looking to take you out. It's the same thing that's going on here. Um. The whole book had been taken both ends of the spectrum, those far away and those close. Talked about this is the Gentile. They had a general understanding of God. This is where they're called called up short. This is the Jew. They had a specific up close and personal view of God. This is where they're called up short. The Gentile needs God. The Jew needs God. The Gentile's a sinner. The Jew's a sinner. And, And so it's both ends of the spectrum and he's doing the same thing here. Last week he looked at those who had their identity forged apart from Christ as a sinner. And that's all of us to a certain extent. Right now, he's saying those who had our old identity forged as a sinner in a religious community. We are always busted. You never measure up. You're always condemned. You're always guilty. You're always ashamed. You're always downcast. You're tired of trying to measure up. You don't want to keep on keeping on. And really, I'm having some sick questions about God. Because Lord God, as Mother Teresa said, if this is what you do to your friends, make me an enemy. 
Okay? And so Paul's talking about that level of honesty and questions, not, oh, you know, we all mess up, it's okay. okay? Something much bigger going on here. Paul says that the law of God in, in, in seven is operating externally, but the law of sin in this I, in this person, the word e- is ego, by the way, I. Um, th- this, this ego here, it says the law of sin is internal. That's not salvation. That's the exact opposite. The law externally judges you. You have sin inside and you are really guilty. That's an unsaved person. In salvation, it's the other way around. You have the requirements of the law met in you, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. And sin, can't touch this. I mean, it has no, no, no claim on you whatsoever. Paul says the exact opposite for the person here. The struggle that Paul paints in Romans 7 is one alone with no Holy Spirit, with no victory. And it's not just, gee, that somebody just isn't doing as good as they could. It's this person always fails, always comes to ruin. There's no hope, and it ends in death. That is not the portrait of a believer at all. And then finally he says, the law is spiritual, but I am made of flesh. In other words, I am an unspiritual person. But he goes on, he's saying, and I am sold under sin. The whole message of, of, of last week was this, 617. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching you're entrusted to, and having been liberated from sin, what Christ did, you became enslaved to righteousness. So saying you have one of two masters. You're enslaved to righteousness and God and life, or you're enslaved to sin. The person that Paul's talking about, I don't know, I don't do what I should do, and I don't do what I ought to, and all that, sold unto sin without the Holy Spirit, struggling unto death. We do struggle, we do sin, we do fall, but not as before. See, the danger of taking this section as normative for the believer, that this is a description of the believer, what it does is wherever you are in your Christian growth, you might as well throw yourself in a chirogenic chamber and freeze yourself solid. Because what happens is it's just, it's just taken all growth right out of the picture. This is as good as it gets. I, I'm just a product of my environment. When it's hard, I'll just kind of stop trying. And when it's easier, I guess I'll muddle ahead. Um, I, I sin, and that's just the way it is. And I'll always have that identity. I'm just going to sin. And God's word, sometimes I don't like to read God's word because it calls me out. There is severe danger in doing this. Let me paint the flip side. Close with this. You ever see these guys? Familiar with who they are? Would you say they sold a few albums? Would you say they influenced a few people? How many people know at least one Beatles song? Come on, be honest. We're in church. How many people heard a Beatles song? All right. How many people who could say that um, it would be an accurate comment to say the lyrics of the Beatles song influenced a generation? Paul McCartney had a really interesting interview about 10 years ago. And he said, you know what? I loved writing. I loved writing songs. You know, a lot of it with John. Uh, we were a great corroborating deal. But there's two approaches to songwriting. There's one where you have a story that you want to tell. You have a message and you write it out. And it's often poetry and then you put it to music. Or you have a song that's rattling around and, 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 it, and uh, the words, you just get the words to fit because they sound right. Okay, R.E.M., Chili Peppers, they do that. They don't care what the song means as long as it sounds good and is a good hook. Which you got, you got to get, get whatever. Um, Beatles, Paul McCartney said, 90, 95% of the songs were total gibberish. He said, we just made up the words, whatever, either we were doing acid, or it was just a funny turn of phrase, or it was just something, we read something in the paper. Day in the Life is an example. They're just random quotes from the newspaper, just randomly. Um, most Beatles songs are made up gibberish as admitted by the, the songwriters. And yet, a generation was influenced, and people find meaning. Okay. Just because it's familiar, just because it resonates with your experience, doesn't mean it's true. And so just because your struggle might resonate with what you're reading in Romans 7, doesn't mean it's true. Doesn't mean that this is what it means. It just means it's familiar. Okay, I think looking at the bigger picture where Paul is making a very clear case, this is not a believer, don't own this. And the reason he says don't own this is because we do all too often. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against, inner being is conscience, um, waging war against the, the law of my mind and making me a prisoner 
of the law of sin at work within me. Prisoner of the law of sin, not a believer, my friends. What a wretched man, what a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Okay, read the very next verse, Romans 8.1. You're going to see where this whole Everything in the book is going toward right there. I'm not going to spoil it for you. On the one hand, I recognize there is this thought that's operating. This is how I see myself. But I also recognize that this thought, how I see myself, is tied to a very clear identity in sin. And that's where I need to part company. Okay, here's the two dangers for the Christian. And Satan plays upon this, but Satan really can use a finger and a keto, and he doesn't have to do a whole lot of heavy lifting. We've done most of the work for ourselves already. Satan's plan A is that we sin, that we dishonor God, that we take it back, that we can do it ourselves, that, that we're enslaved all over again. He hates God. He hates us derivatively. Anything we can do to hurt us hurts God all the better. He doesn't care. Father lies. So any way we can sin, be it be it dramatically, be it subtly, whatever it is he doesn't care, he wants us to sin. That's plan A. And our greatest struggle right now, being saved from the power of sin, is this old sin identity. You see, in Romans, or, yeah, in Romans chapter 6, we've been looking at our old sin identity and how we see ourselves in light of sin. In Romans 7, we've just been looking at the same thing, our old sin identity and how we react in light of God's word. And both of those are not who we are now. See, in both cases, the answer was the same. Our old identity was this. We were a sinner. Condemned, busted, shamed, guilty, blind, dead, without hope, without life, shuffling along, going through the motions like unreasoning cattle, living living large, destined to be slaughtered. It was not a life, it was an existence. That was the lie, that was the the slavery, the the illusion that we're into. And that experience, as we looked at with the Stockholm Syndrome, killed us to think this so traumatized and warmed and bent us, our choices and our experience, that identity is still strong. We're rescued, we're in the safe house of Christ, but we still want to run back to our abductor, the old way of life, because that's how we see ourselves. And so that's what Romans 6 was talking about. Don't continue to see yourselves in the old way as a sinner. Sin completes me. Sin is fun. Sin is awesome. I can control sin on my terms. I can complete where God disappoints me in the way that I need, or or I can project my identity any way I want to. However we want to use sin, we operate out of this old identity. And so Satan's plan A is just to keep giving life to this identity which doesn't exist. Keep trying to make it virtual. Keep trying to, to play upon our emotions and getting us to default over and over again. That's plan A. And again, he doesn't need to do much. Satan's plan B operates on what we're looking at today. He still wants to see us as we were before, our old sin identity, but he wants to keep us boot down in the mud and shame. Because if he can convince us that God still sees us the same way as before Christ... He's going to magnify the guilt, magnify the shame. He's going to play, how dare you call yourself a Christian? How could you talk to your neighbor about Christ? You're such a hypocrite. If they only knew all the things you still do and think and feel in the way you talk about other people, Nietzsche was right. I'll believe in a redeemer when his followers act more redeemed. And so... He plays upon, if he can get us to sin by playing upon the old sin identity, that's awesome. But where Satan really shines is he gets to bring to life this old sin identity and how we relate to the law. He wants to see us as a cockroach, that we see ourselves as a cockroach. And God's truth comes in, and rather it being the lifeline, rather it being my child, and here you are, and I'm glad I found you, and stand up and clean you off and shut your mouth, Satan. This is my child, and we're moving forward together. Rather than that reality, which is true, we keep defaulting to the old reality and we see ourselves as unworthy not measuring up condemned busted we're afraid and we hide we hide from God we hide from others we hide from ourselves and we are ashamed and so we cover up and and these are the Christian lives that we lead and then we normalize them when we see in scripture see the heroes of faith struggled so I guess we all struggle and this is as good as it gets and we muddle on through and we get to heaven somehow I hope the exact opposite of what's being proclaimed here. Paul is saying, I almost, I went insane. I was so hateful and hurtful, I was murdering the people that, that spoke grace to me because I was so enraged at not seeing it operate in my own life. 
And so he's saying this identity is so damnable and will rob you of grace and rob you of joy and rob you of life. Don't buy the lie. And so I think we have a a clearer understanding of don't buy the lie of seeing ourselves as still sinners in old sin identity that sin's enticing and we need it and all of that. And a lot of our struggles there. This one is much more insidious. Don't buy the lie that God still sees you, that he feels in any way that it relates to you whatsoever as somebody still condemned apart from the law. What did we look at last week? The gospel is this simple. God has forgiven you. God has forgiven me of every single sin you have ever done, are doing, will ever do. The forgiveness is complete. It's universal. It's total. It's one-off. It's based on Christ because of God's love. It is finished on the cross. It is finished in your life. It is done. You are saved. But now is the rest of the story, the reality of that, the substance of the soul, the, the value, showing this to the world, showing it to the heavenly places. I don't think we have a concept of the cosmic battle that is going on for every choice, for every affection of the heart, for everything we said is valuable. What we do, how we live our lives, as much in secret as in public, absolutely matters. And what determines how we live is who we see ourselves to be. We have two very strong players operating right now in our life. We have the traumatized view of sin, which is the Stockholm Syndrome. Even though we're released, we want to keep running back. And we have this perverse view that somehow God still sees us as a sinner when we sin because it's the third rail we keep touching. Both of those are lies from the pit. Both of those are not our Christian identity. And to the extent that we acquiesce or we allow that or we hold on to that, we are going to be robbed of joy. Please do not buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that if you are a believer, and this is the thing, if you know you're not a believer, if you know there is a holy God and there's a gulf of eternity between you, know that there is a God who loves you, who is reaching out, who has done everything that you will never be able to do, that you cannot do, so you can come into relationship. But if you have made that jump and you've come into relationship and you've trusted Christ, Please do not buy the lie. This is the whole rest of the Christian life and why what we do right here, right now is so mission critical. (coughs) We have no idea what the stakes are. The next time you sin, this next time, right? The next time you sin, this is the acid test of where you are and how much of the lie that you've bought. What is your first reaction when when you think about God? Is it how am I going to come back to him? Are we going to come back hat in hand? Are we already making excuses? Do we show up in the throne room vomiting forth excuses? God, I'm so sorry. You don't understand. Blah, 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 blah. Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. And it's this mantra. If we beat ourselves up and we feel bad enough, long enough, maybe we can earn it this time. That's a lie. No wonder we see ourselves so negatively because we're just rolling around in our own vomit and, and we don't get past that. Rather than come to me to receive grace and help in time of need. I desire you. I long to stand with you. I long to strengthen you. God's eyes, do we really believe, are roaming to and fro throughout the whole earth, searching for people whose hearts are true, whose hearts who want to follow him, who are tired of playing games, who are tired of just letting go and letting God or trying to do it all on their own, but want to say, whatever you have, God, I want to walk lock step with you. I want my heart to beat in the cadence of your heart. I don't want to miss out on this. And I will always get in the way and I always have these other templates of, of, of the law is going to bust me and I'm a sinner and all this. Lord, help me every day to scrape this away, to not operate out of that old person and give more lie to that person who's dead and help me to operate and discover anew what it is to live life in grace and life in the kingdom and life in forgiveness. Most people would say the mark of a maturing believer is that we'd sin less and less and less and less. And I'd say absolutely not. That might be. Certainly if we are maturing in Christ, certainly if we want to follow him more, we're going to do the things that, want, that please him. We're going to be painfully aware of the things that hurt him and we're, we're going to be working this through. But that may or may not necessarily map out in real time. There's a lot of people that, that do very good things that, that don't know God. It's not an issue of track record because as soon as it does, we return to the law. The issue at the bottom of this of a maturing believer is the time, and I've said it before and I will keep saying it till you, till you cart me out of here one way or another. The mark of a mature believer is that when you sin, the time between your realization, your conviction of that sin, and your repentance in God becomes less and less and less and less. Because you realize 
It's not about you. It's not about you earning. It's not about you atoning. It's not about you making up. It's not about penance. It's not about you trying to feel better or earn it. It's a matter of God. It's humiliating. There's nothing I can do. I can't fix this. Uh, I, I confess my sin to you. I thank you. You have forgiven me already. And I thank you for the, the freedom in this relationship that I have. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, fill fill us with his spirit. And that is every single sin that we commit. That is our hope. That is our identity. We, We were scheduled to have communion, and I deliberately chose not to. In your bulletins are an insert, and you may have looked at those and said, did I walk in the right place? What we're going to do for three weeks, and, and you can, I encourage you to do this. You get out of anything what you put into it, and if this, isn't your, if this is, feels weird or whatnot, there's no pressure. It's all grace. It's all grace. God's given us all grace. Who am I to say otherwise, right? Um, but for three weeks in the week, I would like you to prayerfully begin filling this out. Where you are, and it could be on the other side of faith. This is what I'm feeling. This is how I see God is. This is how I see myself. So be very clear with that. Or it could be on, the, on coming over to faith. This is how I still see myself. This is how I feel. These are the burdens that I carry. These are the sins I keep coming back to. This is where I struggle most with forgiving me or allowing others to forgive me or me forgiving others. These are the besetting sins that just I see more and more looming over me. But whatever it is, whether it's the struggle, whether it's the repentance, whether it's your view of God, but whatever it is that you're feeling, whatever it is that you would naturally give up to God, wants you to compile this. We're going to do this for three weeks straight, and when we get to the end of Romans 8, we're going to have a very unique, a very different kind of communion service. And, and it is symbolic, but, but it's also uh, the reality of where we walk and where we live. Paul understood this and he knew how dangerous it was and he also knew life on the other side of freedom and grace and peace and he's the guy that could write all of this and more talking about how greater the righteousness of Christ was than even his ability to be uber Jew in prison he wrote that and so this is his prayer this is my hope for all of us. That we'd be aware of Satan's schemes, plan A, the old identity, how we see sin. Plan B, our old identity, how we see ourselves as sinners. Both of those are lies. And, and that the greatest opportunity to confront this and work on this is when we do sin, where's our heart before God? Is there a distance? Is there a shame? Do we have to do stuff? Do we have to make up? Then that means we're buying the lie from Romans 6 or Romans 7. We're not seeing ourselves fully as new and forgiven and whole in Christ. And here's an opportunity for more of that. And so just ask for wisdom, what God would have you to share. Wake up in the middle of the night, whatever. Uh, however you want to play this through. But, but I want us to be aware, what are the operating principles that rob us of joy? Uh, what is so close to home? And God's heart that transcends absolutely all of this. Please go and read Romans 8. We're going to have a, a contemplative song and, and just to focus on this going through. And, 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 and we'll head out from there. But again, let's not just walk away saying, okay, I get it. Do I agree? Do I not? Romans 7, I still think it's that. That's academic. I could care less, really, where, where you come down. But what is vitally important is what identity are we operating out of? How do we see sin? How do we see ourselves? And how do we see God? And when the spotlight comes on, when we're convicted, that's where we do our best growing. Amen.
good it is to know that there is freedom in Christ. And uh, because of him, we do have that life. Someone give me an amen. Well, before we go today, we're going to do a short version of a song that I love. And it uh, actually embodies this very thing that because of Christ, we are alive. So let's stand up together as we sing this boldly with confidence.
Tonight brings us, brings us to the end of what we're doing here and the continuation of all that God is doing in, among, and through us out there. Um, if you, there's anything that God has brought up that you'd like prayer for or anyone you know in the week, I'd like to invite our prayer counselors, counselors down, meet with you here, and it's just, it's all prayer. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about us, through those doors are some couches, uh, some people there at the living room tell you all about it. If you are a member, please head straight down to Fellowship Hall. As I said, there are chips and sandwiches available, small cost, support missions, tide you over. We're going to jump right into the meeting. And if you are not a member and would like like to consider four o'clock uh, classrooms right over here we're having our bridge meeting five o'clock our all church prayer meeting 6 30 our evening service downstairs why go anywhere else something for everybody so go in peace walk in love as christ loves us and gave himself as a sacrifice for us see you next week